Well, good morning. Uh, John, I really appreciate the songs you selected and the enthusiasm. You know, it's just, again, it's just so encouraging to be together. Probably going to get emotional every time I get up here for a while, but it's just so incredible to get to be together and just to see each other. You know, I mentioned last week that, you know, Zoom studies and texting and, and all of that is, it's a, it's a substitutional joy, but it's not a true substitution. You know, it's just these, these, these circumstances have just really helped me to understand how irreplaceable it is to truly be together like this physically, to get to sing together like this physically, take the Lord's Supper together physically. Um, you know, I was texting uh, Jason uh, earlier this week. You know, I just feel like I understand so much better, you know, when Paul was in prison and how glad he was when somebody could come and see him, but how much he would look forward to heaven where circumstances would no longer allow any separation anymore at all. And just how, how eagerly he was looking forward to that. But uh, with the lesson last week, um, I've been thinking about, you know, what, what, is, what are the most needed things to be taught right now to equip us for the work of edifying each other and being in the world and having the encouragement to live with resolve in our faith and passion for the Lord. And, you know, I've just really been thinking about how the lessons in Ephesians 4 uh, that um, I plan to do in the year, right now the, the particular lessons that um, were next in the series, the verses that we're going to be focusing on are just very relevant. So the April, the plan for April, which we weren't able to, to do with not assembling like this, was how we're united by Jesus' victory and grace. And that's going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. If you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles there, there's really two main texts we're going to look at. One is here in Ephesians 4, and we'll look at some other verses in Ephesians to kind of expound on the things that are said here. But there's a, there's a very strange but very amazing quotation of Psalm 68 in Ephesians 4, verse 8. So we're also going to spend some time in Psalm 68, looking at the way that that psalm gives greater light to the quotation here in, in Ephesians chapter 4. Um, and again, the, the focus is going to be how we have unity based in Jesus' victory and grace. Unity is really the anthem of Ephesians 4. It's the anthem starting from verse 1, really going all the way through verse 16. And there's, there's a very amazing progression in the scriptures here. It starts with calling us to understand the glory of our calling. We talked about in January how a calling ultimately is something that gives us purpose. It gives us definition. A calling gives us a sense of value, a sense of impact. And a lot of people kind of ambiguously search for their calling in the world and, and what they're looking for. They're really trying to find what appeals to their deepest passions. They're trying to find something where they feel like they can be most involved and have an impact on the world. We talked about how there's nothing more impactful that we can be involved in. There's nothing that gives us any more value. There's nothing that exalts our individuality as much as our place in God's kingdom and in the church. So in Ephesians 4 verse 1, after the first three chapters, give the most vivid and concise, uh, the most vivid and concise description of the glory of what God has done, the glory of what we've received, the glory of how we get to receive these things together and grow and appreciating them together. He says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And then he proceeds to appeal to us to preserve the unity of the Spirit diligently. So in Ephesians, something that I think is important to note as we 
get back into verse 7. Verses 1 through 3 is dealing with a unity we've obtained already. And really that goes all the way through verse 6 with the one Lord, one body, one faith, one baptism, one hope of our calling, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. So there's a unity we've obtained in salvation. But then there's also a, a way we need to maintain the unity we've obtained already. And that's the appeal in verse 3. We need to diligently maintain the unity we've already obtained. But then as the text goes on, the transition here is how we are equipped to continue to attain to the fullness of that unity. So we've obtained unity in the Lord, with, with the Lord and with each other. We need to strive to maintain that unity, but we also need to attain to the fullness of that unity. Really, it's a lot like marriage. When Eva and I got married in December, there's a, there's a very real way where we were perfectly united the day we were married. We were joined together and we became one. Now, there's also an importance, though, we need to maintain that unity we received. So neither of us can just coast along. We need to continue to strive diligently to maintain that unity. But there's also a way that because of the way that we love each other, we also need to grow in that unity. There's a way that we can continue to develop that unity. And that's the same thing with us together being the Lord's church, the bride of Christ. We are striving also to not just maintain what we've obtained, but to grow and develop that unity diligently as well. So verse 7 through 10 is really a transition of how are we equipped to do that? Well, in verse 7, one of the key things is that with all of these ones, one body, one Lord, one spirit, just the nature of the body is there's diversity. So the first point is going to be how we're united in our diversity by the common grace we've received. So I'm going to read verses 7 through 10 altogether, but this first point is going to be focused specifically on verse 7. This is Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 10. But to each one of us, and there's that diversity, okay? So there's one body, one spirit, one Lord. There's unity of the spirit. But then the body, there are individuals within the body who are very diverse. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So when I've read this in the past, pretty much everything else in Ephesians 4 is pretty clear. This to me is like the most ambiguous and difficult to understand part of Ephesians chapter 4. But I think it's a very central part of the chapter to understand Again, to equip us for the rest of the topic of unity through verse 16, how are we equipped to have unity? So the principle here that you see on the board, the the first two points are going to be establishing principles. The last point of the lesson is going to be establishing some applications from the text. But the first principle is how we value our fellowship is based in how we value Christ and the gift of, of grace that we've received in Christ. This is a very hard, but it's a very essential lesson. Because in the body we have different people at different levels of maturity in their faith. People have very different personalities. Some people are very outgoing. Some are very quiet. People have very different abilities. So some have abilities that can be used at assemblies where there's a much more visible function at times. 
Others do not have very vis- visible functions. There are people with different backgrounds. There's, there's different ways of seeing things, different burdens, different weaknesses. And even the reality is our commitment to the Lord is different. Not everybody has the same zeal for the Lord. Not everybody has the same commitment to the Lord. And not everybody understands the Lord in the same way, with the same maturity. So how is it we can have unity with each other and grow in our unity with each other with all of these diversities that exist as a reality in the body? And that's what this text is going to help us to understand. So one of the key things is, again, related to marriage. And I think in Ephesians 2.19, I want to read this verse and think about the illustration of how this relates to marriage. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. One of the key things about marriage and love is learning to value things that your spouse values, right? And think about especially someone like Eva. She had to move away from Indiana, and she came into a life of someone who's doing the work of an evangelist. And that's, there's a lot of difficulties in that. There's a lot of burdens that she's inherently taking on in that. There's a lot of risks that she's taking. And one of the difficult things is learning to value things that your spouse values, that maybe you haven't valued before. And that's just a reality. It's the same for me with Eva. There's things that Eva values that I need to learn to value. Now, Eva is an artist. So imagine one day that Eva wakes up and she comes out and she finds me throwing away these paintings that she's done in the past or sketchbooks that she's invested in. And you imagine she, she would be really upset if I did that. And you imagine if she was shocked and I said, well, what's the big deal? It's just paper. This is junk. We need to get rid of this stuff. Well, it's not just paper. That, those are valuable things, right? So in marriage, there's an inherent struggle in marriage of learning to value the things that your spouse values. And for us with God, it's no different. When we are redeemed by God, The reason why Ephesians has three chapters before any application of just trying to give us the most vivid understanding of what God has done is because when we were redeemed by God, we need to then begin this process of understanding the value of things that God values, especially because what sin has done is sin has destroyed our ability to value things the way that God values them. God values people. He values a certain kind of people. And we're going to see that continuing with the quotation in the Psalms. But when we understand how valuable we each are to God, how valuable I am to God, we're then able to imitate God. The way that I'm loved and served by God, the more vividly I understand how loved and served I am by God, the more equipped I am to imitate God in that same way. Think about Jesus in John chapter 13. You remember when he washed the feet of the disciples and they misunderstood what he was doing and Peter was treating it like it was just some kind of religious rite or practice? Jesus was trying to get him to understand this is just a part of who he is. And he said, when you understand this, you're going to do the same thing, right? So when we understand the kind of service we receive from God, the kind of things God has done for us, the kind of commitment he has for us, we will then have that same growing sense of commitment toward each other. Look at Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 8. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 8. And just kind of think, how valuable is each person to God who belongs to him? What kind of price has he paid to demonstrate the love that he has for each of us? 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. There is no measurement to properly quantify how much God has given to redeem us, for us to belong to him. In Ephesians 4, 7, when it says that each of us has been given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift, that's a gift that can't be measured. Constantly in Ephesians, it's emphasized what God has done is unfathomable. There's unfathomable riches in Christ. There's unfathomable power that he has worked to redeem us. Look at verse 18. This is, I think, the center of why Paul prays this specifically for the church in verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. God is unthinkably invested in the work of saving his people. Not just the point of redemption when we were forgiven of our sins, but the process of redemption, of continuously being made more perfect, having a greater understanding of God and his love. So the more we understand what Christ has done to give us fellowship with him and with one another, the more equipped we'll be to imitate that toward each other as well and grow in that. So now to move into Psalm 68 in the quotation. He says, therefore it says he ascended on high. We need to appreciate the work that God has done to inherit each of us. So not just the price and the value, but the work. And that, I think, gives context to Psalm 68. Psalm 68, the quotation, is, it's a quotation related to God's victory after fighting a battle, after fighting a war. Consider how expensive and risky war is. I don't just mean the economic cost, but I mean the economic cost of war is extraordinary. But think about the risk of lives that are lost in war. Think about World War II, and you see statistics about the amount of people who died during World War II across the world, and it's astonishing. And God fought the most risky, expensive battle with the highest cost to redeem us. Psalm 68 is a very vivid portrayal of the nature of God's victory over his enemies. Turn your Bibles there in Psalm 68. Uh, Psalm 68, I'm just going to kind of walk through very briefly um, the series of verses here in Psalm 68. We won't look at every verse, but just briefly trying to see the picture. In Psalm 68, verse 1, he appeals to God to arise, to let his enemies be scattered, to flee before him. He knows that as God fights this battle, the wicked will perish in his presence like wax melts before the fire, and that the righteous will be glad when they see God win this battle in victory for the sake of salvation. And then in verse 5 and 6, notice the language here. The more we see God's victory, the more clearly we understand the nature of his victory. It gives us a sense of identity, not only personally, but it helps us to adequately identify one another so that we do not have undue expectations with each other, but rather we can serve each other in meekness and compassion. Look at verse 5 and 6. A father of the fatherless and a judge of the widows is God in his holy habitation. God makes a home for the lonely. 
He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. What kind of people is God fighting for? You know, the quotation in Ephesians 4 is, God led captivity captive. It's as if it's an image of God winning the victory and behind him are prisoners of war that he's won by his victory. People who are broken, people who are afflicted and estranged, just like in Ephesians chapter 2 when he urges the Christians in Ephesus, remember how you were once far away, alienated. You were not even associated with God before he redeemed you and brought you near by the blood of Christ. That's the picture here. That God is winning the fatherless. He's a judge for the widows. He's making a home for the lonely. And he's leading out the prisoners into prosperity. The mission of God's victory was a rescue mission to win prisoners and to bring them into prosperity. We're people who need help. We're people who need deliverance. Um, In verse 7 through 10, it mentions again just the power of God as he was going forth to victory, going ahead of his people, Uh, In verse 11 through 14, it talks about how God winning this victory didn't need anybody's help, but even the people who were at home were dividing the spoil and they were overwhelmed with abundance because of the victory that God won without the aid of any person. Verse 11 said, The Lord gives the command, the women who proclaim good tidings are a great host. Kings of armies flee, they flee. And she who remains at home will divide the spoil. When you lie down among the sheepfolds, you are like, like the wings of a dove covered with silver and its pinions with glistening gold. When the Almighty scattered the kings there, it was snowing in Zalman. Again, the image is that God has won an extraordinary victory himself and that the people who are not even needing to be involved in the battle have more than enough spoil because of the battle and because of the victory. So in verse 18 is the quotation, you have ascended on high, you have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden, the God who is our salvation. So you may have noticed something that's different about Psalm 68 and verse 18. It mentions that when God ascended, that he received gifts from among men. And that's emphasized throughout the psalm. Um, it mentions it also in verse 31 that envoys will come out of Egypt. Uh, Verse 29, kings will bring gifts to you. And I think this is understood more fully when we see Christ and the nature of his victory. We're going to look at this more for application in the the last verse. Uh, What can we give God as a gift? In Luke chapter 6, we'll look at this verse for application. It's mentioned, give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be pressed into your bosom. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured back to you. Give and it will be given to you. I don't think Paul is misquoting or misrepresenting Psalm 68 where it says he received gifts. I think he's just understanding the fulfillment of the passage. What God receives, he always overwhelms with a return. Remember the rich young ruler. When Jesus told him, you need to forsake everything you have, sell all your possessions, give to the poor, and come and follow me. And he went away sorrowful because he owned much property and many possessions. He did not understand what he was being offered. All he saw was the sacrifice he was being called to make, and he was overwhelmed by the call of the sacrifice. But then his disciples turned and say, well, Lord, we've left everything and follow you. What's in it for us? And he said, 
There's not anyone who has left father, mother, brother, sister, and even households for my namesake who will not receive many times as much now and in the coming age, eternal life. What Jesus was saying is the sacrifice we make to get close to God, to be with him, that God will never fail to repay overwhelmingly for whatever we give him. We are called to lives of sacrifice. But how we see God's victory, how we see his grace and the gifts he gives determines our perspective of the call of those sacrifices like the rich young ruler. So I think about this in a couple of ways that I think help give this perspective with he received gifts, but then he gives gifts. What can a child, an orphan who needs to be adopted, what can a child who is an orphan give to a family who wants to adopt? What do Anna and Phoebe give to the Bates? Think about a child who's estranged and alienated from their parents, like the prodigal son in Luke 15. What kind of gift was that child who spent his entire fortune, had no money left? What kind of gift did he give his father, who is eagerly seeking to reconcile with his son? What kind of gift did he give? And when an orphan is willing to be adopted, when a child is willing to be reunited and reconciled with their parents, is that a gift when they give allowance for that reconciliation or for that adoption? It is a gift. But is what is given then much more than whatever was received? It is. And in the same way, when we give gifts to God, we're simply giving God what is reasonable for what he's done. We ought to be reconciled with God. We ought to be adopted by him. And just like the father in the story of the prodigal son, the father overwhelmed that son with reassurance and gifts upon his return to make it very clear how happy he was and how blessed he was to be back in that household. So the more we understand the victory of God, the more we understand the gifts that God gives based in that victory, the more we understand our identity in him and our identity together associated with him as prisoners liberated, orphans adopted, that we are a weak and broken people. We have been broken by sin. We were alienated by God and we are being patiently worked on in a holy way to be closer to him. That's really what we remember in the Lord's Supper. When uh, John led the Lord's Supper last week, he emphasized the importance of how the Lord's Supper unifies us. It's not just that we're personally remembering what Jesus did for us when he died on the cross. We are also remembering how that unifies us, that we are all redeemed from the brokenness of sin. None of us are perfect. We are all needy and weak. And so that equips us then to be very grateful for our fellowship, but very patient with our fellowship as well. Go back to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. I've been thinking about this verse uh, since Jason pointed this out in a study a few years ago. Uh, Jason pointed out a few years ago, the mystery of the gospel in Ephesians 3, 6 is very simple. Jews and Gentiles are united together. And you read that and you're like, what? How can it be so simple and basic? But I want you to think about this with God's victory, God's love, God's investment. And I think it's more clearly understood how it was a mystery. The mystery that the cost of association is the same with all mankind. The cost of God to serve the Jews is no greater than the cost to serve a Gentile. The, the lengths God has to go to bridge the gap between heaven and earth, 
the cost of that war, the cost of that victory, is no greater for a Jew than it is for the Gentile. The kind of painful demand on God to bear the burden of a Jew is no greater than the painful demand to bear the burden of a Gentile. The work of unifying people together as a Jewish nation is no greater than the painful work of reuniting all people together in Jesus Christ. The mystery of the gospel is God's love has such unthinkable depth for each individual. And that is made most clear when Jesus suffered on the cross. The more we understand the price that God paid to win the war against sin and liberate us from the prison we were in, from the power of Satan, the more invested we will be be in God's work among his people. So there's a second point here that um, is uh, a mistake from the last point. So I'm just going to skip over that and go to the third point. So this leads us to application, how we are united by the gifts received but then how we also give of those gifts as well in Ephesians 4. This is in verse 9 and 10. There's, there's an extra emphasis to note. If it says he ascended, that implies that he also had to descend in order to accomplish this, that he might fill all things. And that emphasis on descending, despite in verse 10, he ascended far above the heavens. You know, and, and notice that emphasis. He ascended far above the heavens that God had to bridge a very real gap of space and time. And God had to be willing to condescend himself, to compromise himself in every possible way to reach us and redeem us. That there is, again, a very real work. There is a very real cost that God has had to pay to be as uncomfortable as any being in existence could ever be so that we could be reached and given life. God fulfills the command in Luke chapter 6, verse 35 through 38, if you want to turn there. Luke chapter 6, 35 through 38. Psalm 68, uh, it ends with an appeal for God to give power to his people, to strengthen his people, to strengthen them by his voice. And Ephesians emphasizes that same point. In Ephesians 1, Paul prays that we would know the strength of his might and his work toward us who believe. In Ephesians 3, it's prayers that we could be strengthened by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith, and that we would know the love of Christ together. And so, again, Psalm 68, speaking about God's power being given to his people. Ephesians, speaking about God's power being given to his people. Think about this in relation to these commands here in Luke chapter 6, verse 35 to 38. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not, and do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaking together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. How much does it cost to love in this way? I want you to think about if some philosopher or you know, some great moral teacher taught these things, just in the world in general. What if some philosopher said, you know, the, the way to live in life is we should be doing good and actually hoping for nothing in return to mankind. You know, that would be meaningless. It's like, who cares? 
The reason why Jesus could give this command is because God has revealed his nature is based in this principle of application. That our lives and our redemption are based in the application of this command. So in verse 36, that's the key thing. We need to recognize the mercy we've received. And when we see the depth of the mercy we've received, we are equipped to do the impossible. To give in the most difficult and exhausting ways and still not grow embittered while we hope for nothing to be given in return. We are equipped to work to pardon and to bring people into the condition of pardoning. To give while recognizing that God will always resupply what's lost. Again, like the rich young ruler only saw the sacrifice, he did not recognize what he was being offered on the other end of the cost. This is God's nature. For him to condescend to descend is the application of this principle in the most unthinkable way because it's Jesus who said this, because it's him who fulfilled it in his example, because we are redeemed by the application of this command, because Ephesians gives us the most vivid understanding of what we've received because of God perfecting this principle, we are equipped to long to apply this, most especially toward each other. The final application is Romans chapter 15. You know, I think in general, Jesus is speaking that application as a universal application. This isn't something we just strive to apply specifically to one another. But if we're to love our enemies in this way, how much more the children of God? If we're to do good to our enemies and hope for nothing in return, how much more my wife? How much more our children? How much more our brethren? Right? So Romans chapter 15, 1 through 6, I think gives, again, a very clear application of the principle that we're redeemed by, that when we understand what God values, when we understand the victory he's won, when we understand the price he's paid to redeem us and the power of his victory, we are equipped to love in the same way he, is, he loves, to imitate him as beloved children. Romans 15, 1 through 6. Now we who are strong ought to bear with the weaknesses of those without strength and not just to please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever is written in earlier times is written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. just want to give a def- definition of what it means to be strong here, and this is on the board. God empowers us to endlessly edify while taking hits for it. What I mean by that is edifying with nothing being given in return, making effort to encourage even when there's no encouragement in return. The strong in this context are those who are most invested in personally edifying others without growing weary and discouraged by the pain involved. If you want to know whether you're strong or weak, how much effort do you put into encouraging the brethren? There's a difference. There is a difference between socializing and edifying. There is a difference between socializing and edifying. The strong are those who seek to edify, not just socialize. In in verse 2 of chapter 15, we are to please our neighbor for their good to his edification. 
That is a quality that God is working to bring us into. That is the ultimate God-given application of Luke chapter 6, verse 35, when we're thinking about our relationships with each other for unity in the body. If this is not something we are working towards, then the rest of Ephesians 4 through verse 16 that talks about edifying each other for the building up of the body, it's going to have very little, if any, impact on us at all. When we recognize what God has done, we are drawn to want to edify. It's edification of brethren that is the mystery of God's love. Not just that I impersonally do good to the people in the world, that when somebody is poor that I throw money at them and go on with my life. This application demands faith in God completely. And so verse 3, even Christ did not please himself. What kind of hits does God take to love us? What kind of hits does he take on himself to not grow embittered against us when we don't give him the return that he deserves, when we don't give him the thanks he deserves, when we don't serve him with the passion he deserves, when we are in awe of him like he deserves, when we don't fear him like he deserves, when we don't think about his word like we ought to. God bears with our weaknesses persistently and passionately so with, with a resolve to bring us to a mature frame of mind. So we are called in the same way to edify each other without growing weary or discouraged. The weak need the strong to encourage them, to support them, even to rebuke them, to teach with patience. And the strong need to be willing to encourage, support, rebuke, and teach, even when it seems like it's not met with any return of goodness or kindness or gratitude. That's just the nature of the church. Think about the Corinthian church and their relationship with Paul, the Galatian church and their relationship with Paul. In Revelation, the church in Ephesus, all of these churches were disappointments. How do you work with groups of people who are so disappointing, who even after being taught good things, believing the right things, following God in the right way, and they end up withdrawing from that standard that they've been delivered? How do you work with people like that? You apply these principles. You make these applications. The strong need to bear with the weak, and the weak need to receive strength from God as a result of the teaching and the help of the strong. So that's ultimately the direction that Ephesians 4 will continue to go in. And thank you for your patience and going through these things. I hope that this has been an encouragement to you. And if, if, there's, if there's anything that um, at this time you would like to make known to the saints, uh, we'll, we'll try to figure out a way to bring it forward with, with this invitation as we stand and sing our invitation song.